Court Avenue was extremely popular back then. But like going into a building, being able to like feel how much life had been lived in there before. I find that's what's interesting about architecture is when architecture reflects the time that it was built in and also reflects like a specific set of values. So it was a, a big, huge, gracious apartment. And, Great and, for um, parties. Yeah. And, and it was really a lot of the experiences that happened here that built a friendship that's lasted really a lifetime. Welcome to the Pasadena Project, Episode 3, Seeking Independence. I remember walking into the building and thinking, wow, this is like so big, how are we ever going to be able to afford this? Um, but we, uh, we could and we did, and moving in was pretty exciting at the time. This is Teresa Rogers. And she and her roommates, out. Heather and Yvonne, lived in the Pasadena in the 1990s. We became, I didn't really know uh, Yvonne that well, but we became best friends. Um, we worked most of, I think Heather and I did during the day, and Yvonne did at Sophia's, and we were both three very busy women. Um, we had full lives between work and um, our social life. When Teresa and her roommates moved into the Pasadena, it was a great place for young people to get their footing and start their lives. It was affordable, centrally located, and fostered a great sense of community. The building still is. That's why I fell in love with the space. But to start this episode, I want to go back a few years to a different time, when the building was a place for young people to start their lives, but for some different reasons. I want to tell you about a young woman named Cornelia Zant. Cornelia was born around 1900 in the Netherlands and immigrated with her large Dutch family to Manitoba around 1905. There were seven of them in total, her dad, mom, and four siblings. Shortly after arriving in Winnipeg, the family moved north to the Interlake region of Manitoba. Cornelia's father, John, operated the local post office, and the family farmed crops on their quarter section of land near the town of Ashern. When Cornelia turned 18, she wanted to escape this small-town life. The provincial capital was booming, and she was drawn by the buzz of city life, as well as the opportunity to make money for her family. Around 1920, she moved into the city and found herself working in one of Winnipeg's many new luxury apartment blocks. That's right, I'm talking about the Pasadena. At one point, we were building more apartment buildings per capita than Montreal or Toronto, which were both larger, much larger cities. This is Murray Peterson again, 
the historical buildings officer for the city of Winnipeg. Everybody knows somebody that lives in an apartment block in Winnipeg, and that's not true everywhere. Um, Winnipeg was was pretty unique, and the apartment block became, you know, pretty much on every corner practically. The apartment block has a long history in Winnipeg. In fact, Winnipeg was home to some of the very first apartment buildings in Canada. The Cochon Block at Main Street and York Avenue was built in 1883. It was initially meant to be a commercial building, but by the following year, the building's owner was renting to residential tenants, making it the first apartment block in the city. The Westminster Block was built at Donald Street and Ellis Avenue in 1884, and it's considered to be the first structure built as an apartment block in Winnipeg. According to Richard Dennis's 1998 essay on apartment housing in Canadian cities, the first apartment complex in Montreal wasn't built until 1889, and the first permit for an apartment building in Toronto wasn't issued until 1899. Uh, the economy obviously was booming. Winnipeg was one of the largest, uh, the fastest growing cities on earth during this period. The, because the economy was booming, because more people were coming into, into the city to live, uh, there was a lot of capital. Um, because apartment blocks were so successful, uh, they made for a very good investment. You know, you could build an apartment block and you were pretty much guaranteed to make your money back. In Winnipeg, 1912 marked the height of the city's growth period. 56 apartment buildings were built in that year alone, including the Pasadena. Richard Dennis says that apartment blocks were far more popular in Winnipeg than in other Canadian cities. By 1914, 249 permits had been issued for apartment buildings in Toronto. In Winnipeg, which was about half the size of Toronto at that time, 343 permits had been issued by 1914. Another factor was just the, the, the type of people that were pouring into the city at that time. Uh, a lot of single men uh, that were uh, basically traveling salesmen. They called them commission agents or manufacturer's agents. But they would, they would come into town and then they would head out west to try and sell their wares, basically. Uh, for those people, an apartment block made perfect sense. The Pasadena featured spacious units with multiple bedrooms so it probably didn't attract the kind of single men that Murray Peterson is talking about. But it did attract upwardly mobile tenants and people who had recently arrived in Winnipeg, who may have viewed the Pasadena as a stop on their way to someplace else, perhaps a bigger home, or perhaps a different city in the West. If you look at the directories and census records for the first few years of the building's existence, you find a huge turnover in tenants. From 1914 to 1916, only three tenants remained the same in the building's 24 suites. Many of these were young families with men at the beginning of their careers. In 1916, 23-year-old Harry and Elizabeth Hansen lived in apartment A3. Harry worked as a tobacco salesman, while Elizabeth stayed home with their two young children. In apartment B2, 24-year-old Victor Hurst lived with his 23-year-old wife, Hilda. They had moved to Winnipeg from Ontario, and Victor worked for an insurance company. Another reason why Winnipeggers readily adopted the apartment block was simply climate. You had uh, cold winters, obviously. There's a lot of uh, data that shows that uh, a lot of people preferred to live in apartment blocks than, uh, than to the expense and the, um, the, the work of, of upkeeping uh, single-family residential. It was very, very hot. I remember in the wintertime we had to have the windows open 
because it was just stifling hot. And my family still talks about the apartment because when they would come to visit and the candles would all be melting from the amount of the heat from the radiators, um, they remember the apartment really well. Another of the reasons why we got apartment blocks was, was bylaws, was the city of Winnipeg. Uh, the city moved very quickly, um, you know, sort of understanding that these were a popular um, residential uh, uh, units, these large units. They wanted to make sure that they weren't, that they didn't end up being slums. So there was uh, fairly strict bylaws right from the beginning on, on how high you could build, uh, the materials that you built with. Um, you were allowed three stories, um, so there was a raised basement. Uh, it had to be brick, and then uh, you had to supply a certain amount of light and fresh air. So uh, the apartment blocks uh, used an amazing amount of uh, different shapes. There was W's, there were I's, uh, the U, like the Pasadena, there are, there are O's. Um, so you'd have a central, like an enclosed courtyard. Um, so they used all that to get more light and air into each of the suites. So there was tons. There was so much room of light. Yes, tons, tons of right. a, um, beautiful, beautiful light. Big windows and lots of and light. And I think we painted it a bright yellow, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we painted the living room a bright yellow, <laughs> and we painted the dining room that beautiful. Um, this is Patricia Scholes and Chila Pribislavski. They lived in the Pasadena in the 1990s. We are both the types of people. Mm-hmm. who, especially at that time, were a bit like sponges oh, yeah. for energy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and if a yeah. space really felt good, yeah. that, I think that was really mm-hmm. important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you, as you get older and you get into your 30s, you start mm-hmm. to create those boundaries a little better. But mm-hmm. I, think, I think we're both um, very much influenced by our environment. Totally. And this was a very, very very supportive environment for yeah um taking care taking care of yourself yeah yeah it was oh yeah because of the beautiful living room with all that light and our morning sessions were hours let's return to cornelia zant when she moved to winnipeg she found a job working as a maid for the mendelsons a jewish family comprised of father emil mother Jean, and daughters Carol and Pauline. They lived in apartment 7C of the Pasadena, a spacious suite with three large bedrooms and a smaller maid's room next to the kitchen. Emil Mendelssohn worked as a traveling salesman selling women's wear, which may have been why they hired Cornelia to help around the house. Women would come into Winnipeg to seek independence. This is Susan Close a professor at the University of Manitoba who studies gender and architecture. And for many young women, especially coming to the city, they um, wouldn't have the currency, they wouldn't have the wealth in order to settle without having a relationship with someone that had uh, quite a good job, because that, that was a luxurious apartment block for the time. So that many of the... Um, Women that lived in the building would either be in, uh, in a relationship, usually a heterosexual relationship, and uh, they would be dependent on someone else's breadwinner unless they were working in a support situation, unless they were an au pair or if, perhaps if they were a maid. And that's why I asked you about um, the layout of the interiors. 
One of the things I was really interested in exploring when I started this project was the lives of the people employed by tenants of the Pasadena. Many of the suites in the building have small bedrooms near the back exits or adjoining the kitchens. And it's been suggested to me that these were the maids or servants' quarters. The census records from the early 20th century confirm this suspicion, with many people, mostly young women like Cornelia Zant, listed as either maids or servants. We could have imagined the lives of any of these people. Clara Sigurdsson, for example. Clara was born into the large Icelandic community in Winnipeg's West End. Her parents were both immigrants, her father Samuel from Iceland and her mother Mary from France. They lived in the Hampton Court apartment block at 478 Langside Street, which was built by Samuel and other members of the Icelandic community in 1914. By 1921, when Clara was 17, she was employed by the Rhodes family in apartment 4C of the Pasadena. Ernest Rhodes was an auditor for the Canadian Bank of Commerce, and he lived with his wife Mary and sons Dallas and Eric, who were both under the age of five. Period 1880 to 1920 is a period of big change for women. We start to see women living more independently. We start to see women as heads of households, and it could be because they were single, they were divorced, um, maybe um, they were in a lesbian relationship, but we've got a redefining of domestic space where women are seeking um, a more independent life in the city. And so they're moving towards apartment living as opposed to, because they can't afford to move into, uh, to purchase or rent uh, larger units. Although early census records don't indicate many single women or women heads of households in the Pasadena, there are some exceptions. In 1914, for example, Two years after the building was built, there are two women listed as the heads of household in the Winnipeg Henderson directory, both of them widows. Annie Sherwood lived in apartment A3 with her adult children, Emily and George, and Rose McEwen lived in apartment B3. By 1918, there's more evidence of single women or women heads of households moving into suites in the building. 40-year-old Alice Langley moved into suite A1 as early as 1916. The Henderson directory from that year lists her occupation as a private tutor. And a woman who was identified as Mrs. Frank Hansen lived in apartment C2. Her occupation is listed as a violinist. And around 1918, Agnes Smith moved into apartment C5, where she lived with her adult children, William Alexander and Margaret Victoria, until around 1925. And certainly during this time period, as women move into the city, we've got a rise of feminism. We've also got a rise of um, socialism related to Marxism going on. It's certainly among the working classes and into the middle class, a way of sharing labor and of helping women so that they don't put in eight hour work or 12 hour work day and then go home and do it all over again. So the apartment or um, multiple unit dwelling offers that possibility. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly um, not the way that the units were planned, but certainly could easily be incorporated into um, the adaptive reuse of this building now. Uh, the 
potential for activities like communal gardening. And in some cases, we had um, shared childcare or shared cooking in order to help um, within a community that's almost it's on the edge of being um, a commune. Because the Pasadena was a more expensive building in a more exclusive neighborhood, there are less examples of this kind of collective or community living than perhaps in other buildings. However, there are some hints in the archive that point to these kinds of living arrangements. Around 1919, sisters Elizabeth and Wilhelmina Carruthers moved into apartment C2. This would have been one of the smaller units in the building, on the raised basement level, and was likely less expensive than the suites on the upper levels. Elizabeth and Wilhelmina both worked as nurses, and we can imagine they shared the housework. Perhaps one of them cooked dinner while the other was at work, or maybe they worked the same shifts and stopped by the supermarket on their way home to make dinner together. Maybe they chose the apartment for its proximity to the streetcar line running down Corridon Avenue, or maybe they enjoyed the unique architectural features of the building. I enjoy thinking about this life these two sisters could have built together in the Pasadena. (laughs) Another thing that was really significant at that time for both of us was food. Do you remember? I remember making stuff in the kitchen with you and just kind of, that was a big part of our day too, was really, really healthy meals. And at those ages, you start to learn about Indian food and different things. And someone comes over and you learn how to make something. And and we were swimmers. We swam three times a week. Yeah, well, I wasn't a swimmer before I met you. You you encouraged me. Yeah, we joined the Masters Swim Club at at the Y. Y. And we would walk there and talk the entire time. Yeah, and and have a great swim and... Yeah, have a great meal. Yeah, it was such a fun time. I want to finish this episode where we started, with Cornelia Zant. She and Clara Sigurdsson would have been living in the Pasadena at the same time, working for two different families in 1921. I can't help but wonder if they knew each other, if Clara gave Cornelia tips about living in the big city, or if they went on walks together in the neighborhood swapping stories about their employers. Like so much from this time period, it's impossible to know for sure. But what we do know is that by 1926, Cornelia was married to a man named Edward Wood, who had immigrated from England in 1921, the same year Cornelia worked in the Pasadena. They lived together in St. Boniface, on Hill Street, both still so young in 1926 and just beginning to start their lives together. That was episode three of the Pasadena Project. Thank you for listening. The theme music for the series is by Bougie Belgique. This episode also featured music by Poddington Bear, Gillicuddy, and Circus Marcus. You can find a link to all the music on this podcast in the show notes. For more information about the Pasadena Project, including links to everything referenced on the podcast, check out pasadenaproject.com. 
On the next episode, we'll dive into the lives of two of the Pasadena's longest tenants. The Pasadena Project is supported by the Winnipeg Architecture Foundation and funded by the City of Winnipeg, the Province of Manitoba, and the Winnipeg Arts Council. The Pasadena Project is produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. <laughs>